Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and our favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else you want to go to. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can easily buy tickets with just two taps and have your tickets delivered straight to your phone, and then you can just enter the event. If you can't make the event, SeatGeek now lets you transfer tickets to your friends or post your tickets for sale, all from your phone. As a special offer for Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is giving $20 back off your first purchase with the code BSPN. To get $20 back on your first SeatGeek purchase, download the SeatGeek app and enter code BSPN. Channel 33 is also brought to you by Audible. Do you love books but find you never have time to read them? Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go. At the gym, during your commute, Audible.com provides over 180,000 audio programs from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen to your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books, so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible.com also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries. You can exchange any books you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. I personally love Audible. I just read or listened to The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright on that. Uh, it was great late at night. Didn't really feel like reading anymore. That's my problem, but I still get to listen. Uh, it was a great experience. Uh, and just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash BSPN today to start your free trial. Again, show your support for Channel 33 and get a free 30-day trial for audible.com at audible.com slash BSPN. Yeah! Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan and on the other line, my deadbeat cousin, it's Andy Greenwald! We're doing a two for this week, feels good. Good Friday edition. Yeah, we gotta drop the new music on Fridays. Here we were, uh, no, that was just the joy, man. We just went back to Good Fridays back in the day. You know, we were gonna just get right into some Transparent in the Nick and round up some television. And then Yeezus came back to life. It's a pretty exciting day. It's almost as if he knew we were going to record today and that we were just thirsty. Thirsty for beats, thirsty for topics. So Kanye West uh, released uh, a song and a half today. Um, a, a one track called Real Friends, which features production by Kanye West and drum programming by uh, one of my personal favorite producers, Havoc from Mob Deep. Features a sample yeah. by Boy Wanda. Sounds. If you need you need this summary, it sounds a little bit like "Take Care of Drake," I guess. But that's not a shot because I like "Take Care of Air Drake." I'm just trying to give you a a word picture, a word sound collage. Take. Can we get like five seconds of real friends here, just to let people know what it's like out here? That's it. Oof. That was a boy wonder keys. That harp. Taking you back into that headspace. Yeah. I'm just taking a shot of tequila and thinking about why Rihanna left me. Yeah. Here. All right, that's good. Are we letting it ride? Or can I, can I, can <laughs> I drop some beat it. rocks over that beat? <laughs> here's why Here's why I'm pretty excited about this song, not only because it's terrific, but it. you mentioned the Drake headspace. Let's go back a little further. This this has a little bit of the raw emotion that we love on like from like family business. Radical you know I mean? vulnerability. From like early, early dropout era Kanye just, just, just just revealing himself like when he back when he's back folding sweaters at the gap. Yeah. I really like that and I especially like that because you know we didn't even talk about facts which was his 
I guess now annual New Year's Eve release. And there's a reason why we did talk about facts because it's because <laughs> we don't good. speak ill of the dead. <laughs> I mean, let's leave that song in 2015. You know what I mean? Like, if it was a little worrisome, like I, I wasn't the biggest only one head on going from New Year's last year, right? But that was a song about his mom and about his daughter, and that was some that was emo Kanye, which obviously I'm predisposed to like. Starting the year off with like shoe salesman Kanye made me a little worried. It made me a little worried. You know, that's not that's not what people want, and and it also touched into the larger um, concern that we voiced about the Swish album, which is coming at some point. Which is this is the first time in Kanye's, and again, maybe we have some new listeners. We are going to say. I speak for both of us when I say near, near flawless career where it has seemed like he's not quite sure who to come back as or how to come back. And so if he was reading the tea leaves and he's like, people like Jumpman, but they would really like Jumpman more if it was a sneaker commercial. That's <laughs> not really reading. <laughs> that's not really Jumpman reading the tea is leaves. not a sneaker commercial already. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. So, so this was nice. Yeah, nice. you know, I think that this is for as much as this song is great. It's basically about um, the difficulty of maintaining like deep friendships as you grow older and get busier and have a family and all the things that happen as as you you enter the twilight of your thirties. Um, you know, I think for as much as the song is great, it portends for great things to come. If this is truly the beginning of a Good Fridays. I can't think of anything that would make me love the internet more in 2016. Andy and I have often talked in, in past podcasts about just how special it was when, when those tracks like Christian Dior, Denim Flow, and The Joy, which we played at the beginning of the podcast, and Runaway, and Power, and Monster, like those songs were coming out uh, every week. And I was tra- trapped in like this, I was in this office in Chinatown in New York City writing uh, ad copy uh, for a soap, um, a women's soap. For a moment. When you said that you were trapped, when you said you were trapped in Chinatown in New York City, I was picturing you trapped in like one of those like high stakes off books, you know, yeah, cow guy I rooms from the gambler. I was trapped in an endlessly repeating first scene from Michael Clayton. <laughs> okay, that's that helps me. That just grounds me. But, but yeah. it was just it was one of those things that did make the internet feel special and not like an albatross on your soul. It was like we were we were experiencing something communally. Everybody's emailing each other back and forth. You know, um, the the energy around it, the the feeling of being witness to something beautiful and creative was really fantastic. Also, let's just say um, there's a cynical version of there's a cynical way to look at this and a more hopeful, optimistic version. And I, I, I I'm actually totally fine with both. And it's basically that Kanye's creative process is more interesting than most people's. And so if we're going back to a Good Friday model where he's basically clearing the decks, like here are all the different versions of what Swish could have been, all the things he's been working on. Let's do that version of the album because the all the other way, he tried to do it in more traditional ways. He tried to be like, look, I got giant stars. I'm with Paul McCartney and Rihanna. And that version didn't work. He came back with all days like, okay, this is going to be my summer banger. That never really took off. And frankly, the reason it didn't take off is because the version of it that went out into the world didn't come with the visuals that came from the Brit Awards with a man blasting a flamethrower into the air every five seconds, which if we could do for this podcast, we would. Um, you know, but. and so hopefully this this is this is the lead up to Swish, and, and by spring we get ourselves a new Kanye album, and I, I can't wait. I also love you were talking about vulnerable Kanye, emo Kanye. I love shit talking Kanye. So if yeah. this is if if there's any any of that on it, I'm I'm really excited. The the snippet when Kanye originally released the song this morning, so it was like real friends, and at the end it had uh, was it no no parties in no new parties in L.A. What was it called? 
no parties in LA. No new friends at parties in LA. <laughs> no parties in LA, which features Kendrick Lamar and production by Madlib, and just the just the the taste of that was enough to make me, mm-hmm. you know, walk across America barefoot just just, just to just the more. taste in your mouth. It's just like a little amuse bouche at the Kanye restaurant, just just sparking the taste buds. Greenwald, you know, uh, we were just talking about Good Fridays and how that was a very special moment of a feeling like you were a part of something and feeling like you were witnessing witnessing someone working at the height of their powers. And those things are few and far between. But uh, you and I recently separately, but we recently got to experience something that I hope everybody, you know, it's it's a hot ticket and it's hard to get into, but I hope that everybody gets a chance to do, which is to go to Broadway and see Hamilton. Can I can I just <clears throat> Broadway pod? Broadway. Uh, you know, Hamilton has been uh, started at the public last February, and so it's it's rounding into its first year of production. It moved to Broadway in August, I think. Uh, it is the latest musical from Lin Manuel Miranda, who did In the Heights, um, and it is a rap infused historical musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton and his spoiler alert, <laughs> his spoiler alert, doomed relationship with Aaron Burr. And his tempestuous relationship with, you know, his, his tumultuous relationship with the United States Constitution, the American Revolution, several women. Uh, and, you know, it's it is it, if you've read anything about it, uh, it is everything people say it is and more. I, I don't know anybody who is cynical about this. No, I mean, there are things in this world that are justifiably hyped. There are things in this world that are wildly overhyped. It would be almost impossible to imagine something with more positive, rapturous hype than Hamilton. And I walked out of that theater on Wednesday night being like, it's not hyped enough. Like, it didn't do it justice. I was so blown away, steamrolled, and moved by this piece of art. And one of the reasons why, and I'm not even saying this as someone who's just like a great defender of the great white way. I have not lost much sleep being like, oh, the fate of the American musical is really up for grabs. That said, I sat down in, for the, in my seat for the show and within 10 minutes of it. And, you know, in the first 10 minutes, you have like an exhilarating rap battle. Yeah, the first the first uh, the first act is really like Splash Mountain flume log ride of, of, it of is. emotion. And, yeah. and I was sitting there and I was like, if Stephen Sondheim walked into this theater sat down he probably has i could just see him being like oh they figured it out that's how this is going to work for 50 more years because this this is an argument not just for the show but for a complete art form that many people doubted and you know to take something and and i would apply this to almost everything that we talk about whether it's a tv show a movie or another tv show we we generally only talk about a few things (laughs) but The thing about Hamilton is that it is wildly smart. It is essentially historically accurate and based on Ron Chernow's exhaustively researched biography of a founding father that many people kind of overlooked, right? It is wildly inclusive. The cast is predominantly biracial African-American. It is extremely feminist in the point of view and the voice and the narrative that it gives to the female characters in an era where they are not often considered. Yeah. The songs are dope. It is really hard to write good songs, you know, let alone songs that pull from the scenario remix as an inspiration, songs that pull from like Beyonce's Countdown as a as a as an inspiration. And my dad 
you know, my 76 year old dad is bumping these songs on the reg. I can't. It's so weird. Like before this, I've been listening like most of the the late winter. I was mostly listening to Wire and Proto Martyr, and like now since then, I just listen to the Hamilton soundtrack. I really love. What I mean is, there's a few songs like even if you don't get a chance to see the show, I encourage you to listen to the soundtrack. Although when you see those songs live, there's a certain energy that the soundtrack sort of lacks. Um, But God, there are some really good songs. What? If you just listen to the soundtrack, you probably can't appreciate David Diggs' performance as Thomas Jefferson, where he essentially reimagines our nation's third president as a member of Goody Mob. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it is so good. but And, and the show itself is so moving um, that it's hard not to listen to it without getting really emotional. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. I, but when we talk about the show, and then we'll move on to TV, because it's really hard to get tickets for this, and I don't want to like, <laughs> make it seem like it's easier. But I want to introduce a new theory of criticism to you right now, live direct off the dome on this podcast are you gonna freestyle I'd like to call i'd like to call the dianu theory of criticism okay okay now my people and half of yours have a phrase <laughs> which is dianu right which is that would have been enough like if only this had happened to us as a people like if only if only the big man upstairs had done this in egypt dianu that would have been enough so okay, that so was that my was feeling about hamilton, hamilton. like if the songs were just great dianu like i would have been on here raving about it if it had been just emotionally rewarding in that way if it had been so inclusive and exuberant and thrilling dainu that would have been enough you know but it's all of those things it's wild we rarely get to see something so brilliantly realized in the moment where it almost needed to exist and and that made me really up it was a great way to start the year because it makes me excited about art and culture yeah that's exactly right man it just really does make you feel like what a time to be alive is sort of a a silly cliche at this point but you walk out of there feeling that way if people you know the tickets are Base, it, to say they are the hottest ticket in New York City is, is sort of an understatement. It's really difficult to get seats right now. I will recommend to people this, though. If you get a chance, go to YouTube and check out Ham for Ham, H-A-M number four Ham. And they've got all these great videos before the show almost every night. I think they're taking a little bit of a break now. But before the show, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and some or all or the and, and guests of the cast go outside of the Richard Rogers theater on 46th street, I think, and do basically an impromptu concert for people who are waiting to see if they've won tickets in the lottery. The first few rows of the, of the theater are usually reserved for people who win lottery tickets and are able to go to the show for not very much money. Those, those little performances are really great. And they also actually give you a really good sense of the ecstatic vibe that is surrounding the show i remember when they when 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 the show began and and they started with alexander hamilton this girl behind me freaked out like the beatles just walked on stage in shea stadium i mean she just started screaming when the show was over people almost exploded out of their seats not to, to say nothing of the fact that my roommate NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell seemed very moved by it. Whoa. And when I texted uh, my coworker, Sean Fennessy, I was like, Goodell is here. He hit me up with a tweet that was from September of someone else being like, I am at Hamilton with Roger Goodell. So he has seen this show at least two times. I know that, like, you know, it, this is basically you're going to go rubbing elbows with people, uh, with Steven Spielberg, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Beyonce, all these people are going to this show, but it's really a, a the show show for the people if you can get in. I feel like Deep Grantland stands will appreciate two things. One, of all the coworkers, of all the coworkers you could have chosen to text in that moment, I'm interested that you chose Sean over another one. Gosh, I don't know who you're um, talking about. <laughs> two, just speaking of Grantland, like uh, our pal Rember Brown wrote a really, really good uh, interview with Lin Manuel Miranda that 
was on Granlin last year. So even if you haven't seen the show, again, it's historical. So please don't avoid spoilers. That would be ridiculous. I really recommend checking out Rem's talk with Lin-Manuel Miranda because it really connects a lot of dots with musical theater and the point of it and the possibility of it to doing things like listening to Tribe Called Quest scenario remix, which at least for our target demo, or at least our own demo, that's a lot more relatable. Yeah, there's a lot of really good uh, golden age rap references. There's Biggie, Brand Newbie, and Mob Deep that, that I caught. I would want to go see it again uh, just, just, just to listen for the, the, re- the references to other songs. So moving down the Great White Way, I saw the Gloria Estefan musical was playing. So I think we should talk, talk about, about that, that next, right? <laughs> no, man. We, you know, we came back uh, after the new year and we caught up with The Force Awakens. We got woke and then we sort of, you know, we missed the end of a couple of shows uh, yeah. of, of seasonal seasonal ends of a couple of shows. And there were a couple of shows that we hadn't gotten a chance to talk about for a while. So we wanted to take this extra episode of The Watch this week to talk about um, Transparent and the Nick and um, Homeland. Yeah. And then we were going to chat a little bit about shows that are coming up. So, Andy, I wanted to start. Let's start a little bit with the Nick. Yes. Uh, I went back and reread an excellent piece on uh, Vulture by Matt Zoller Sites about the making of the second season of the Nick. And if you have any interest in Steven Soderbergh directing television anything please go look this up i'll tweet it out later it's this excellent piece about how soderbergh produces directs edits and shoots the nick and how they they shoot at a page per day pace that dwarfs anything else i mean they are burning through uh pages of script there's no director's chairs or actor's chairs because people what's up also Also, remember remember that they do uh he films it like a film in the sense that everything shot in the Nick is shot all at once. So the characters, if the act, he can only work with a certain kind of actor. Obviously, the actors have to be super good and super in control of their character, but they also have to track their character because Clive Owen's Thackeray is, goes through various emotional states and uh, chemical states while, if we're using the Nick as an example, while in the hospital, and he has to film those back to back to back and then basically rewind his emotional state on tuesday to be in a different place yeah there's an amazing photograph in in matt zillersites piece of a of a costume for thackeray that's got a post-it note that says thackeray you know scene whatever with vomit (laughs) like his his his, it's his basically his usual costume covered in puke uh anyway you know so they're in this article soderbergh talks about you know the the untapped potential of long form storytelling in television, and all these different things that you can do. And in terms of the visual aspect, from the from a visual perspective, I do think that that the Nick has rediscovered new potential and reached that potential and shown what you can do with these conventional two person conversations or three or four person conversations or a, a hospital show and the way you can tell that story visually. But what I want to put to you is that the problem with the second season of The Nick is that it's too much like a television show. Right. You've expressed that before. And I don't think you're necessarily wrong. And I think what you mean is, just to be clear, the fact that instead of focusing the way a film would on the most interesting things, the show felt the need to sort of service secondary tertiary characters with their own B, C, and D plots. So we would sometimes lose track of the things we cared about most. Right. And the episodes themselves would sort of lack a central, like a, a central narrative direction or 
propulsion because you would get three scenes into a Thackeray uh, episode scene or storyline and then it would cut away to Cornelia investigating the death of a health inspector or Gallinger pursuing eugenics and it would just kind of be spread thin and also and he talks about this at the beginning of the second season most of the main characters have spread apart you know they're in different parts of the the, the world really um and the first half of the season is them coming back together. And then the second half of the season is pretty much them splitting apart again. And, and, and that's a very TV rhythm to, to follow. And I agree with you on that. I, I, I could see it both ways. I was with you a little bit through the meat of the season until the end when the Cornelia stuff, you know, it turned on a dime and there was a revelation that we don't even need to get into. But basically all of that stuff that seemed tangential was really much more core to the storyline of the hospital than we had perhaps first realized. I thought that was well done. My the biggest concern I had the, for me the biggest flaw of the season, and I want to just say up front that the last episode is astounding and uh, one of the best hours of TV from the last few years. And the flaw of the season for me was that they kind of lost Andre Holland's character. They lost yeah, Algernon sure. Edwards, and that character is one of the more interesting ones in TV in the last few years. The performance is astounding. Um, I, you know, since we're since we're since we're it's old folks home this week. Um, the podcast I got to do with Andre Holland back at Grandland is one of the ones I'm most proud of just because of, he was such a compelling interview and was so willing to be open with me about all sorts of things, um, particularly related to race and casting in Hollywood. So the fact that his storyline was as raw and, and, un, um, interesting as it was in the first half of the season to have him just essentially kind of vanish was disappointing. But, you know, the show, even separate and apart from the, the through lines, what the show did in the finale, and you know, I think it's possible to say that it's a finale in all sorts of ways, really was exciting because you rarely get to see a show do that. And what I mean by that is the show basically ended itself. Yeah. And it ended itself and we didn't see it coming. Um, and what it allowed it to do was give closure and round off stories in a way that didn't feel unnaturally elongated, right? Like, in, in some ways, there were many more stories to tell with these characters, but in another way, as you're saying, we already saw that entropy starting to set in that is endemic to television shows where you start servicing B, C, D, E, F, G, ultimately Z plots. So the thrill of seeing, oh, no, we don't we're not going to do that. We're not going to play by TV's rules. We're just going to we're going to kill the main character in the last episode um, and do it in the most spectacular, accurate not accurate because God knows if that actually happened. But right. um, well, apparently it did. But the guy was successful. Okay, well, so to do it in the most appropriate way then for the character they had built is what I guess is what I meant to say was was really something. I mean, and let's just say one thing that the show maybe got away from in our way of discussing it was that it is insane in terms, in terms of, of what it portrays <laughs> yes. and how difficult it can be to watch. Yeah, And, and we, we came, came back, back there in, in the last episode. episode. Yeah, maybe the, we got uh, a little bit away from it. That the, So the, the sort of series and... Well, I mean, the series might not be over because we'll talk about that in a minute, but this, the way the season ends is with uh, the main character, William Thackeray, performing a self-surgery uh, with only a local anesthetic, basically, right? Like a spinal yep. anesthetic. And it gets so grimy about... It, he's, he's basically, like, removing necrotic sections of his bowel by himself. And it gets so... What is the word? Granular? I don't even know what you would say about this. And you're just watching it. It does do that thing where it goes past grotesque into the beautiful. And then even in the 
pullback where you're back in the grotesque, there is a weird sense of, of sad beauty to it. I thought that that was really, you know, the, the last episode is phenomenal, but, but... But you think about some of the stuff that, you know, may have distracted us from Thackeray throughout the season, and one of the storylines that was completely off on its own island was the relationship between, uh, you know, Sister Harry, the mm-hmm. former nun, and and, uh, um, and what's his name? Cleary. Uh, Chris Sullivan, Sullivan is the actor. actor yeah. but, um, Cleary. Uh, yes, uh, the, the ambulance driver and, and tough, and, you know, they're sort of burgeoning romance now that is something that was written in it like a tv show that was telegraphed from not day one but early on we saw that coming the whole season but it was handled with real deafness and real delicacy the performances were astounding and it, i've used astounding three times but that's my word for the show i guess um the performances were so subtle you know they were never they were never um telling us they were always showing us and they never kissed and yeah, it, it didn't, didn't matter yeah because it did some really strong emotional storytelling in a traditional TV lane. So I guess I'm only saying that as a, just to make the point that when it wanted to be a TV show, which it almost never did, the Nick actually was pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. So so the question you is You know what here, it is? It's like Cleary and, and Harry are the two characters Cleary. who actually have an arc where they are much different from where they started, Right. Uh, I think that one of the issues is that when we get to the end of the second season, Thackeray is still uh, an egotistical, damaged genius. Um, Andre Holland's character is still on the outside looking in at a world. I mean, these are all historical facts. They're not necessarily er errors in character development. But I think what you want to feel when you're watching two seasons of a show is that there is some sort of arc to the characters. And while I appreciated subtle storytelling things, like I think you could say as much as it's about medicine, that the Nick is about these unconventional relationships, whether it's um, uh, Algy and Cornelia or Gallinger and his insane wife or Thackeray. And was it Abby who's the per- person with syphilis, the woman with syphilis? Yeah. You know, these sort of unconventional love stories almost uh, in a lot of ways. But I, I just felt like I think somewhere in the middle of the second season, I felt as if I was watching a remake of the first season and even amazing moments like the riot from season one was sort of being replicated by the subway explosion in season two of like, right. okay, here is our electrifying, very kinetic, visceral. There's a disaster episode, you know, um, as far as Soderbergh just, well, I think one thing that illustrates what I was talking about earlier where, you know, he was talking about, television being the, the brave new world of, of visual storytelling the one the the moment in this penultimate episode and this the episode starts and it's just 1894 in nicaragua and it's like yeah. it's basically thackeray and robertson's origin story and if you know soderbergh you know that raiders of the lost ark is one of his favorite movies and this is essentially his raiders of the lost ark from the the just the visual visual standpoint that was so exciting, and I was just sitting there for a second. And this is a testament to how exciting the show is. But I was like, "Oh my god, what if they just flash back to 1894 Nicaragua, and this is the new Nick for well, yeah. you know, like, and that the rest of the the show is going to be Thackeray in Nicaragua ten years before the Nick started." Let, let's talk about this though in terms of a sea change in television storytelling. And what I mean is, the for however many decades TV has existed, it has been a servicey medium, right? Like, let's find the things that the audience wants and give them more of it and steer the show towards those things. Part of me says, 
boy, I wish the Nick could keep running forever like a traditional TV show because this is really rich soil. And the guys who wrote it, Begler and Emil, like they didn't write this to be Steven Soderbergh's vanity project. They wrote this script because they thought there was a TV show there that could run for however right. long it could run. Right. And they're not wrong. Like the, the medical science, the, the, the world where, you know, technology is still so... In, in the mirror it shows it reflects back to us about how we put our faith in these institutions, but we're basically just chopping at things with you know machetes. We don't know what we're doing any more than we ever did. The problems that plague us as humans are still you know ongoing. It's still a rich text, but we're moving now into a place where Steven Soderbergh is one of the most restlessly enthusiastic people that exist. He just released his annual list of the things that he watched and read and experienced in 2015, and it's fascinating to look at. It's really fun to to go through, you know, auteurs, they're just like us, but <laughs> they watch the world rest- figure skating championships and then Zodiac in the same night. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's more like you, but the restlessness is what made the show so twitchy and fascinating. And he was as interested in this as he could be. And maybe he's not as interested anymore. So the fact that it leaves us wanting more is a new dynamic for TV, but it would be a lesser show if he slowly started to get interested in something that he couldn't do on this show, be it Nicaragua or something else. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it kept going. So that said, you were alluding to the end of the show. Cinemax has kept silent about this. I have gotten the vibe and I've heard whispers that there is potential interest in continuing the show. Um, but it really, A, depends on Soderbergh's interest. But more likely than not, whatever version of the Nick would continue would not be this Nick. Maybe it would be set in the hospital, you know, 50 years in the future, 100 years in the past. I don't know. But that this cast is done. Um, obviously, Clive Owen is done. I mean, and that is an interesting idea, but it depends on what Soderbergh wants to do. You yeah, know? And I if mean, they find the, a version interview, of it that's interesting, well, then it's worth doing for everyone, right? Yeah, the interview he gave EW, I think he said, you know, the idea was always the Clive arc was going to do two seasons. And that at the end of the second season, I would turn the keys over to another filmmaker who wanted to make it in the same way and that this would be a sustainable way of making this show for other filmmakers. And I, I wasn't sure whether they would be bringing in other writers or not, but basically a hospital show, quote unquote, the Nick could be Cinemax's hospital show and it could be set in, like you're saying, the future, the past, how, whatever you want to, however you want to do it. Um, and I know that Soderbergh's got another show from the, he's producing the girlfriend experience on stars. And then I think he is, I mean, the, I read a note that said he had, a, he was working on a show for HBO with Sharon Stone. And I, I don't know what that's about. Uh, so we're probably done, at least for now, with the Nick, Steven Soderbergh's The Nick. And I just so, it was just so cool to watch. And, and it, it's worth noting two things. One, you know, I was reading Mo Ryan wrote a piece for Variety today about things she sort of like resolutions she wants TV for TV in 2016. And she was like, I wish that they could make a good medical show. And I agree, like, medical shows are one of the backbones of TV. And so this idea of Cinemax having this potential franchise of a medical show to be that could be done in a unique way is valuable to everyone. I mean, that would be great. Yeah, Two, it's, it's worth remembering that when I talk about Soderbergh's restlessness, the reason why the Nick is on Cinemax, um, and this is a lot of people have continued to ask this, even though it was, you know, excellent for two years, is because he just couldn't exist within the logjam of HBO's development process. HBO bought this, saying, we want to be in the Steven Soderbergh business. We want to work with Clive Owen. What a great pitch. And then they were like, so here's how we do it. We're doing these nine other pilots. Then maybe we'll fit yours in. And then we'll have to, we only broadcast one night a week. So we have to figure out a time when, I guess, in the back then, you know, when Boardwalk Empire is not or Game of Thrones is not or whatever. And he was like, 
okay, I hear that. I respect that. But I'm going to do the show in 70 days and I have Clive Owen for 70 days. So we're either doing it on my start date or we're not doing it. And TV doesn't work like that. But luckily, HBO had a sister channel ready to roll. And so it'll be interesting to see, will the streaming services be more flexible with those sorts of things in the future, for example? Yeah, I, I had also heard that, you know, that, that that HBO offer was there and that one of the other re- that one of the reasons why I didn't do it is because he was like, I just, yeah, I do basically want to shoot this gorilla punk rock. I'm going to go make this and then I want to put it up. And I basically don't want the expectations surrounding it that usually come along with it whether it's a big HBO drama or whatever. Yeah. I, I basically just want to get this up there and let people find it. And th- this is something that sort of followed Soderbergh over the course of his career, even when he's working with people like George Clooney. I mean, the Oceans movies are a little bit... The Aaron Brockovich Oceans and Traffic period is a little bit different. But for the most part, he's made a lot of very commercially viable films over the last 10 years that he has made for as inexpensively and efficiently as possible so that he could be as idiosyncratic and personal as he wants to be with things like haywire and uh contagion and yeah you're right you know he's just like i want to make this movie this way and even though it's got an mma fighter and it has a great cast and is about international assassins with haywire i want to make it in this weird you know almost tone poem way and so i don't want to submit it to go through the the churn of the hollywood promotion machine and then have a 50 million dollar promotion budget attached to when it makes money again. That is such a terrific point. And by the way, everyone go see Haywire. I love that movie so much. Um, but this idea that he wants to make things that are commercially viable, like a like a virus outbreak movie or a fighting movie, an action movie. Yeah, or like the, the side effects. It had Channing Tatum and Rooney Mara in a 90s thriller plot. You know, basically had a, a, a 90s psychological thriller plot line. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Channing Tatum, and Rooney Mara. You, you should be able to say that's like a green light lit Hollywood movie. Right. And so, but I think everyone listening and everyone who pays attention to this stuff is aware of the way Hollywood works in terms of movies now. And so that actually makes sense, even though it's almost counterintuitive. We know that Hollywood is now in the blockbuster business. We know everything has to be squeezed into the same shape hole for it to be released, go through the same marketing, the same smoothing and shining process and worry about the foreign markets. He just doesn't want to play that game. What's interesting about what you're suggesting is that now TV is becoming that as well. So that you almost want to do a runaround and end around from those expectations within TV too, because the prestige Sunday night HBO slot is just too much. It has to be too many things, too many people. So he wanted to avoid that, which is an interesting harbinger of what's to come if that's the case. Yeah, for sure. You know, we spent this time talking about Soderbergh. It really has been quite quite a a fruitful time for for these sort of auteur director uh, types in, in, in television, streaming television and somebody who's sort of really risen over the last two years is Jill Soloway. Yeah. And, um, in a completely different way, transparent is no less demanding or harrowing than the Nick. Um, yeah. And if you read Ariel Levy's piece about transparent and, and Jill Soloway from December, in the New Yorker. what's an interesting parallel between Soderbergh and Soloway is, is that these shows are as much about how they've been made you know, Soloway is a lot about creating more or less a feminist film set environment and a, a feminist yeah. creation space. And Soderbergh is so fast, cheap and out of control and like trying to work as efficiently and as quickly and as, as inexpensively as possible. It's interesting that that television has become 
a place where people can be incredibly progressive, not only with what they put on the screen, but how they get it there. Yes. And I think, you know, we were going to talk about transparent on its own, but it, this almost leads directly into what I wanted to say about Homeland, which is the, you know, and we've gone back and forth on the show and back and forth on the season. And there were parts of the season that I really enjoyed. And there was even a, a great scene in the finale that I really enjoyed the scene with the, um, the Russian agent and, and Manny Patinkin saw, like, I hope they can figure out a way to keep that Russian guy on the show because that was, that scene was a well-written scene. It was a terrifically acted scene. It was taught. That was great. It was everything that we like about spy fiction of people like two chess masters. It was like smiling and each other. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was terrific. So even in the midst of what I thought was generally an awful episode, like that was a, a shining beacon. But what I wanted to say was the frustrations I felt about Homeland this season, I think can be chalked up to the way TV is made more or less. And we can come back to that, but everything is becoming, you know, it's not just because I'm a critic, I think that I'm thinking about it. Like, even if you didn't love Transparent's second season, and, you know, I, I there were moments of it that um, I'm still not sure if they worked for me. Like the flashbacks mm-hmm. to World War II era Germany had a lot of beautiful ideas that Michaela Watkins, whose performances are always beautiful to me. I love her as an actor. Um, I don't know if it worked. And I, I'm trying to figure that out. But what I'm saying is you can you watch that show and you know that it is top down different, mm-hmm. that they are chasing emotional ideas and emotional threads or just why am I, why am I uh, couching it? They're chasing emotions in a way that other shows and rooms are built to chase plot. Yeah. And it's... because of that, um, there are moments that emerge that like, that just like surface in the watery, you know, in the, in the Pfefferman swimming pool of that show that just leave you breathless. Yeah. And when, and one of those in particular um, in the finale is there's a scene and I, I feel like we're all over the place. And you know, if you care about spoilers, I'm sorry, this is not a spoiler because the show isn't really about that sort of thing. You know, you don't find out that, um, that Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton, right? Judith light or the Judith light is the mother of dragons. Um, although that casting would be dynamite. Um, there's a scene, you know, the, the God Richard Mazur is, is just, just big old bear in his way out of retirement with a ponytail as, uh, Judith Light's uh, was that guy ever retired? I feel like he stays working. Okay, he just he just comes back on the A list, or he comes back on my personal radar. Um, he has a scene with um, uh, J. Duplass's character, um, Josh Pfefferman, that is so raw and so beautiful, and it is basically about mourning, mourning someone who is still alive, mourning a relationship, and this is like deep, deep, like like sub-basement therapy talk yeah so maybe that's why i'm responding to it but you they put that in a tv show yeah. and they let the actors go to that place and they put that not just in a tv show that's in the finale of a critically acclaimed tv show the finales of critically acclaimed television shows are usually when major characters get got like that's when people get murked right not, not when, when they, they collapse into tears and we just live with that so that alone puts transparent at the top of every list i think both critically but also in terms of why you should be watching it to think about how tv is made I've been on a tear. I just wanted to throw one potential criticism of the show at you, and I want to know what you think of it. As much as I loved seeing the show, even as an antidote to a lot of the other shows that were out at the end of last year, just tonally, emotionally, I started to think this season that I wished it wasn't bingeable because it is a, it is a, it is a heady, deep place yeah. to be. Yeah. And, you know, by episode two, that would the second Indigo Girls episode, let's put it that way. I was watching them. I was binging them because I love the show. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot. Yeah. This is a lot. This is challenging me. It is making me uncomfortable in ways that I was surprised about. But 
I am still a, you know, I'm still Joe TV watcher sometimes, and I wanted a break. And I, <laughs> Joe TV. That was, that was interesting, interesting to me. me. I don't know if you felt something similar. Well, you bring I up a really if... good point. I don't think that this show could be an hour long. Uh, I'll put no. That. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> it, would be, it would be unbearable. And I watched a bunch of them and was having those kinds of feelings that I think you'd like to think that you're, like, more intellectually... That, that you can work past any feelings of I do or don't like these people or I... So it's right. this character, this fictional character is doing something that I don't approve of. And the more that I binged it, the more I was kind of feeling a little bit like suffocated by the behavior of the Pfeffermans. More uh-huh. just how they treated each other. I mean, I, I, I just mean I, just the way that the season opens with people going to basically Josh announces that he's, that he's he and his wife or, or his fiance are pregnant. And yeah. uh, it says you can't tell anybody, and, and Gabby Hoffman's character promptly tells everybody, and later on, Josh's fiance loses the baby. And, you know, I, I just kind of, like, felt there were lots of things like that that happened that are never really reckoned with as they are not reckoned with in real life. And I was just feeling like after I watched episode after episode after episode, I was starting, sort of starting not to like these people very much. And then as soon as there's a sort of four-episode run at the end from the music festival on that really grapples with... The historical connections between Weimar and, and, and pre-Nazi Germany or Nazi Germany and contemporary uh, the contemporary life and also is much more about Gabby Hoffman's character sort of making this decision to become the person that she's going to be. I thought that that and I watched those episodes a little bit more spread out and I thought that that was a much easier way to watch the show. It's interesting too. Just the way you're talking about it, there's only one episode after the festival. Oh gosh, you're right. But, 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 I, but I, I feel like the last the last three or four are of a piece, and the first four or five are of a piece. They are. I just think that that's interesting. The way we are processing these shows that we are watching in very different ways. And so you watch. You also. Fin- I finished it uh, more recently than you did. I think. Yeah. And um, because of that, your brain has sort of done the work of extracting the parts, you know, that maybe mattered more and aligning them into arcs in a way that the show didn't. So that's that's a whole that's that's interesting because that's a whole other aspect of the staggered experience. And by that, I mean, if it's bingeable, we're all watching it at different speeds and at different exactly. times. That's an, that disconnect is something that we haven't really reckoned with. Um, I do. Yeah, I do want to talk about Homeland only because. It bummed it, it bummed me out, but it didn't like before. We we no like we've 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 taken our shots at the show in the past, and we basically made peace with it this season in a lot of ways. We were like, it's fine, it is what it is, and believe me, it is what it is. Yeah. But I was thinking about it a lot this season, especially the last few episodes, in terms of how TV just gets made, and what it's what really struck me at the end of the season as it reverted into this very weirdly. Um, conservative show. And what I mean by that isn't even political, because you could make a politically conservative show that would be fascinating and rich and surprising, right? What I mean is that at the end of the season, journalists were were dum-dums who should be in prison. The CIA and the German secret police were heroes who were misunderstood. And kind of Muslims were terrorists. You know what I mean? Like it, it reverted into this very simplistic worldview. Right. And I bet if you interviewed everyone who worked on that show, from Alex Gansa to Meredith Steam to everyone else on the writing staff, none of them would espouse those views about the world. Mm-hmm. They would have so much more nuance than what the show ended up articulating. And what that struck me as a symptom of was a, a TV writing culture where you know you break the season in terms of plot points. 
you say we want to have a terrorist attack and then we want to have it foiled here and then we want to have this happen here. And you let the action dictate what the characters do. You let action dictate behavior because you're servicing the beats and the points because Homeland has established itself at, at this point as a show that is has X number of gotcha moments per year, or breathtaking, leave you breathless moments. Yeah. And you think about that in direct opposition to a show like something we loved last year, The Honorable Woman, which was on Sundance, and I still hope people will check out. That was a show that dealt with issues that would be, that I feel like Homeland would look at and be like, well, we can't touch that. Like, yeah, that right, was so. about Israel and Palestine in a very raw way, but it never got, even if you, if you watch the show, you never felt like you were being clubbed with anything because it started with the characters and their relationships and built from there. You just knew that, you know, yes. that's what, that's what his consideration was. And so more than anything else, it bummed me out because I would love a show that, that tackled all of the hot button topics that Homeland did this year. And you and I talked about how like it, there were moments in the middle of the year when they were talking about Syrian refugees where we were like, what, like, how did they do this? Right. Like, how, how did they, they like they law and order themselves? Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how now Cinemax has the Nick and that could just be their hospital show. Yeah. yeah. We've alluded to this. We've chatted about this before, but I just really do think that that Homeland and Carrie could have a divorce at this point. And oh my not really God. trying Did to it... disrespect the, the goddess Claire Danes and, and her cry face. But um, this is what you're saying. They've kind of written her into a corner and she can only ever be this like outraged, insufferable anger bot who's either getting who sees something nobody else can see or just you know screwing something up royally i it's such a it's become kind of a one-dimensional performance and i'm so much more interested in like astrid saul the late peter quinn i assume and all these other characters i mean even even the the the, the laura poitras stand-in character that they had was no she they can they can throw her out a window sorry <laughs> yeah, well the german secret service almost did that's uh, what i'm saying the way that those characters are kind of living in a real world, even if it's one shot through the Homeland prism, yes. is much more interesting to me than what they keep doing to Carrie, which is sort of putting her... I mean, she's just always miserable, and I I get it. She's had... The, the, the sustained existence of Homeland is going to require Carrie to always it, be Jack Bowering it emotionally but, but jack bowering it and it that's like the least interesting part of the show it, it, it's emotionally jack bowering it i mean i cannot even deal with the fact that this season ended with her being forgiven for everything begged to come back to the cia told she's a genius and then proposed to by a global billionaire based out of nothing she's that she is that amazing and what you know, happened again, with no that shot- guy was trying to fire her he was like make sure we let, don't bring carrie back she's yeah let, let me let me now, the actor, that dude who was also in Lives of Others, I love him. I, I hope he's back on the show. But, I mean, the thing is, even Claire Danes has to be very frustrated by this and, and the box she's in. And, and uh, you know, she's great on Master of None, so let's remember that. Because if you watch Homeland and you put in your head that everything that Carrie says ends with Claire Danes going, <laughs> you will, if you do the drinking game, you will be dead. And one of the more interesting things about TV in general is when there is a clear... Um, disconnect and mis- misunderstanding between what a show is and what the creators are doing, right? And one of the more famous examples of that is with The Sopranos, and that created some of the more interesting tension in the show, which is that David Chase was making a show about like um, a spiraling drain of humanity and violence. And he, the vibe he couldn't deal with was that the audience were like, let's whack more people. 
they wanted the mob show. And he was like, I will not give you that mob show. And then that tension fueled some of the show's best seasons. The Homeland fatal flaw has always been this idea that this is somehow a romantic hero and that there's love here, that she's so good at her job. You know, like that, that was the problem going back to the Brody stuff, which you could maybe forgive a little bit because the Brody stuff worked so well in terms of critical acclaim and Emmys and the audience. Right. But the fact that everything on the show is like, Quinn is like, I was always in love with you. It's like, why? Because he, there's, there's no evidence for that to be the case. He's like in the, the Sullivan Blue it. letter that he writes her. He's like, well, if yeah. you're reading this, we didn't work out. It's like, yeah, no shit. You, you guys were not going to work out. You were not a viable couple. You are and, a target for sarin gas, and she is a bipolar spy. Like, that was yeah. never going to happen, guy. And guess what? It's 2016. A show about a target for sarin gas and a bipolar spy in. Yeah, you can yeah, make yeah. That, show. that show. You don't need to make a romance. They don't have to also, be star-crossed lovers. To. You know, I here's one. My recommendation or my my how we'd fix it for this is actually to make Carrie Saul. So obviously, doing Homeland without Carrie is probably a no a non-starter. But I hate when these shows get into season six, seven, and it's just like, well, Carrie got herself into another pickle again. You know, it's like the world's unluckiest woman. Make her Saul. Make her the person who's mentoring another young agent who's got yeah. problems but is a genius. Put Saul in the Dara Dahl position. Put Saul in the put Saul in the the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he's working in Washington. Have Patankin come in six times a year. Do whatever. But Shop. the the yep. uh, to sh- one thing that I think that I have an issue with Showtime shows is that that lack of interest in really shuffling the deck and changing how they deal shuffling the deck is such a good point to make because you can do that now and i feel like that is a huge break from the way tv was made for decades but you can do that you can get a really good actor to be the new carrie if you were moving claire to being saul the the old way of conceiving a tv show is a hero narrative that takes the character from a to b to z to like the sumerian alphabet at the end of season 11 right like you are on a straight line, but you just simply don't have to do that anymore. You can just come at it from a different angle and still be the same show. And Showtime does seem very much stuck in the old way of doing things, which is that every show, whether it's called the name of the main character or not, whether it's called Dexter or Ray Donovan, this show, essentially, it's not Homeland. So it's not really about national Imagine security. William Macy it's, died like eight times on Shameless. But Shameless is an old-fashioned show, which is why I like it. Shameless, other than the, you know, the, 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 the drugs and the sex, it is essentially an NBC show. Um, from the 90s, and that's good for that reason. Um, Homeland is essentially could be called Carrie Matheson, and that's the least interesting part of the show at this point. So, it, it, which I think the reason we keep harping on it, it doesn't matter. The ratings are fine. The show is going to run seven we seasons. We keep harping be on it because we think an international espionage show yes. set in this contemporary MIU would be like really cool. Which is a pretty good segue into our in and out segment of yes. shows we're going to be into. So, let me just set this up just by saying. Um, some people have asked me this, even though I am not currently writing TV reviews on a weekly or daily or whatever basis, I'm still getting the stuff, but I've been super busy and, you know, we had the holidays and on vacation and I'm also trying to like, just was trying to relax a little bit. So I haven't actually watched most of these, these screeners yet. I'm about to get into them. So we've got this pile of shows that are premiering in the next few weeks. And so when we're going to play a quick, quick round of in and out with them as whether we're going to watch them. And this might influence what we end up talking about on the show. But I also think it would be fun to do this now because I, when we've done this in the past, I've seen like five episodes and it hasn't aired yet. You haven't seen them. So this is purely based off of the vibe, the trailer, the whatever, in or out. And so the segue to, to start with is London Spy. In. 
London Spy, should we set it up? London Spy is premiering on BBC America on Thursday, January 21st. It is a contemporary spy show, right? right. And it, the cast is crazy dope. It's Ben Wishaw, who people might know from uh, the James Bond movies. Yeah, he's he been playing Q. M. Yeah, or Q, right, sorry. And yeah. uh, Jim Broadbent, who I've been rolling with since Topsy Turvy. You're Broadbent for days. I am a Broadbent head from way back. Um, and Charlotte Rampling, by Love the her. way, who's just... She's, she's going to be all over the globes this weekend. I thought I, I right? saw her at a restaurant in Brooklyn. If that was, your, that was, that was you, Charlotte Rambling, what's up? Really? Yeah. Really? What do you, what, Chris, let's role play a little bit. I'm Charlotte <laughs> Rambling. I'm having like, you know, I'm, I'm having some seared brook trout at a local bistro in Carroll Gardens. What does Chris Ryan say to Charlotte Rambling? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just like, do you like your trout? <laughs> do you like your, but do you say it's super creepy? No, I just feel like trout's great here, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or, or you like trout? Great order. Yeah, great no, solid order. Although, uh, or I would have been like, strong, strong move to get trout on a Sunday. Oh, no, nah, that's been disproved, the whole fish on the weekend thing. Oh, really? Um, yeah, are you still living in like 2000? No, because Bourdain is in the big short talking about how on Sunday or Monday that all that fish turns into fish stew. Is he still talking about that again in the movie? This was his thing in like Kitchen Confidential in 2000. Like if you're going to a sushi restaurant for them, and if it's like a good restaurant, they're taking care of their fish. You're okay. Okay. Meanwhile, meanwhile, smash cut to Charlotte Rampling, like just <laughs> crippled with mercury poisoning from the terrible tuna she She's ate. just like, I got this and weird river river womp rat disease. I never never should have eaten the trout. That red-haired lunatic who assaulted me was all wrong. All right, London Spy. Um, I don't know what else there is to say. Like, if you told me there was a show called London Spy, which audience, dear reader, I'm telling you there is. I'm watching it. I so, watched the first episode last night. Oh, yeah, because I, I the the BBC version of it. Uh, I wonder. The, I'm sure it's the, the same one. The student has become the, the master. I know. Uh, Wishaw is great. I will say that the first episode is a little slow. Uh, it is about a, a it's about a, a a guy who is sort of a party guy in London. Ben Wishaw has a great kind of quasi. I think it's Cockney accent. Who meets a, a another guy running one day. And uh, they start a love affair, and through this love affair, Ben Wishaw gets pulled into the world of in, in, you know international espionage. That's how it always goes. But it is 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 a little British in terms of its pacing. <laughs> little, 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 little British, just, just like it's just like that little bit of Monday fish British. You know what I mean? Oh, but but like Monday fish at the chippy. Right? But I, like, I remain like, in Broadbent is great. Uh, what's the next show you got? All right, next show is we talked about this a little bit, but. Um, FX's upcoming American crime story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Yeah, yeah. If if David Schwimmer is my Robert Shapiro, my dude. If David Schwimmer is your North Star, is I mean, Schwimmer is Robert Shapiro, right? Yeah, you got Schwimmer in there. You got you got. Uh, oh, is that Travolta? Oh, I don't know. Let me Travol- check. You got Travolta. You got Schwimmer. You got uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this when we saw the trailer. Really in, really into the idea of it really into the fact that there there aren't that many stories that were and we talked about this before i think but that like that were this culturally enormous that actually feel almost forgotten in a lot of ways the, the minutiae of it and how obsessed everyone was and i'll say it i said it before i'll say it again ryan murphy's name is the biggest one in it but it does seem that other than directing it this is not his thing like it's the it's those dudes who did people versus larry flint which is a really underrated movie, and it seems like it has a different tone. This is his anthology series. He's done one before? Well, American, American Horror, Horror Story. Story. Well, no, this is... But has he done an American Crime Story before? 
No, people are confused because American Crime is this completely unrelated anthology series that John Ridley does on ABC. Gotcha. So American Crime Story, he's doing OJ this year. The next one he's doing is about Hurricane Katrina, apparently. Yeah, and I just want to hit a big global pause on that one. <laughs> like, I want to, I, I, like, I just want to take a moment on this show and, like, just search all the best gifts and memes of people being like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Word? Because, like, if you filled... You could like you could fill a superdome full of people who could potentially tell a story about Hurricane Katrina with more I would say sensitivity and appropriateness than Ryan Murphy. But you know, if we like this show, then I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm excited for this. This, look, this looks like a Ved television to me. What's the last show we got? Uh, X Files is back, and we've never talked, talked about I don't think whether we have, I don't, have we? Are are you are you are you into that show? Was that your thing? X Files falls into a uh, a time in American history that I like to call. I was going out at night. <laughs> so there's like all these shows in the 90s when when your boy was like working at a bar and, and was like going to see bands and would come when, home. When you, and, say when you say working, you mean like you were putting in work at the bar? No, I was actually like bar backing and like cutting limes and then and then just giving fist bumps to Rye Coalition when they were loading into Middle East upstairs, and, you know? And then be like, guys, guys, I know you're busy playing a show, but try the trout. Yeah, it's, seriously, the trout is sublime. I know it's it Sunday, brown believe sauce. me. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of dead zone for me in, in television where I did not like really watch it. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something, an anecdote that actually, it seems as if I'm trying to defend myself. Um, but it's, it's kind of true and it's kind of relevant. I didn't watch the X-Files either it, initially, which is weird because I was super into Twin Peaks and I like, like conspiracy. Yeah, sure. I liked all that stuff. And you know, and I wasn't cutting that many limes. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, right, right, right. But I didn't watch it. And then my college girlfriend was super into the show, super into the show, to the point where when she studied abroad her junior year, her one wish wasn't like, write me every day. It wasn't like, come visit me in Prague when the flowers bloom. Uh -huh. it, it was, here is a, like, here's $70 like worth revolution of, thing? <laughs> I was just trying to, I, maybe, I was just trying to riff and make it poetic because the next part is the opposite of poetry, which is to say, here's $75 worth of Maxell high quality 120 minute VHS tapes, tape the X-Files for me. So now I'd like to think that there are probably better ways to have spent part of my senior year of college. But my girlfriend was away, so I was just hitting record and I was like, oh, this business with the black oil is frankly fascinating. Yeah. Like, oh, word, that's an alien? Oh, okay. And the show was kind of good then. There was a, there was a, that was the season that began with this, I think, pretty, um, pretty well-loved episode where Michael McKean, basically, um, Duchovny, like, Freaky Fridays into Michael McKean's body. And this was in the run-up of the mythology stuff, which I actually really liked because I was total dork, non-cutting limes about that, into the movie, the first movie that, again, I will ride for. Was I really like so the first I movie. Got, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of what happens in the X-Files. I just, you know, but you, sometimes people but you, are like, oh, you remember that episode? I was like, nah, dog. But here's the, here's the thing I'll say, and I haven't watched the new episodes. So I'm looking forward to it. But it's weird. Like, I feel like my interest in the show then was, oh, a, a conspiracy, like a big overarching story that, you know, that Twin Peaks had and that Lost had that I kind of geeked out for. I think I'd like to think that what I would appreciate in retrospect and what I would like to see more of now is kind of what it was initially, which was an anthology show for brilliant writers like Vince Gilligan to just do the creepiest stuff they could pull out of their mental closets. Right. 
Like, let's just make a fun, weird show that could be terrifying one week and goofy the next week. I feel like that would fly better, A, now, and B, as a reboot. Like, yeah, that, that is more rebootable than, oh, the cigarette smoking man is still puffing on clothes with his Canadian accent trying to tell you something. Like, <laughs> I'm not... not like, there are stands who are like, oh, Mitch Pileggi is back. And I'm like, I feel like Mitch Pileggi was waiting to be back. You know what I mean? Like, he, he wasn't, like, worried about his mining interests off of the Chad and was like, oh, cool, I'm back. Like, I guess I'm an actor. I guess I'll, like, I'll, leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave the mine. Um, yeah. Any other shows? Um, I, I, I definitely think I emailed you some other ones to talk about, but I definitely don't remember them, which is probably a good sign. Okay, well, we, this gives us a good a good base uh, we'll be back Monday. We'll talk about Globes. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about David Bowie's new album because there's nothing yeah. I like more than electro jazz and sixty nine year old men. Yo, is that record not... is fire though. That record, that record is secretly fire. Good. Um, Andy, good talking to you. Uh, thanks to Tate. Thanks to Kanye West. We'll be back Monday. Great job, Baranski.